This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Last fall, my producer Josh and I had some fun taking a personality assessment to find out if we were narcissists. You can go back and listen to that episode to hear the results. The assessment we took was research-backed, but as we took it, we found that it left no room for nuance. For many of the questions, I found myself wishing I could answer a little of both, or sometimes, or depends. But that's not the way that many personality assessments are structured. They're black and white, which is a big part of the problem. Most popular personality tests assume that people can be classified into personality types, but people don't fit into neat boxes. Most people, for example, aren't entirely introverted or entirely extroverted. Yet, despite the fact that many of these tests rely on a flawed framework, many of them are still widely used by employers of all sizes, and it's easy to see why. We want to be able to understand how people can work better together. In fact, Fast Company has published several articles over the years about personality tests at work, including one about the most popular test, Myers-Briggs. That article, and especially that test, drew the ire of longtime Fast Company contributor and frequent guest of the show, Dr. Art Markman. Art is a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin and founding director of the program in Human Dimensions of Organizations. When Art expressed his disdain for Myers-Briggs, I asked him to write about it, and the resulting article, Why Everyone's Favorite Personality Test is BS, was one of the most widely read articles last year. Joining me to discuss what's wrong with many personality assessments at work and how employees and managers can think differently about personality is Dr. Art Markman. Art, thanks so much for coming back to the show. It is always great to be here, Kate. So let's start at the beginning. What's so wrong with Myers-Briggs? It's one of the biggest and most commonly used personality assessments, right? Yeah, it's it's certainly gotten a lot of traction. It's been around for a long time. But as I like to point out, it was created by a couple of people in the 1940s who thought Carl Jung was really cool. And Carl Jung was really cool. But the archetypes that that he laid out were, are not really a great basis for an underlying system of personality. And the field of personality psychology has actually made a huge number of advances since the 1960s. And it's one of those areas, you know, many people may have heard of what they call the replication crisis in psychology, where there are findings that did not replicate on, you know, when you tried to do the study again, you didn't necessarily get the same results. That replication crisis has not hit the area of personality psychology nearly as hard as it's hit some of the other areas because it's an area in which measurement has always been something that people did, took really seriously and and thought about really carefully. And so once there was really good science underlying the measurement of personality, which happened about 20 years after the Myers-Briggs was first developed, um, the field has been quite stable since then, but it's landed on a different set of underlying personality characteristics. And so the Myers-Briggs has a couple of significant problems as a measurement. 
The first is that it has fairly low test retest reliability, which is pretty much what it sounds like. If you take it again, you're not necessarily going to get the same score again. Whereas other kinds of measures like what personality psychologists call the big five characteristics, which I'm sure we'll chat about, uh, those are very stable across the lifespan. You'll, you'll get similar results on a, on a big five inventory over long periods of time. They drift slowly over the lifespan, but, but there's a lot of test retest reliability there. The other thing is what we know about most of the core personality dimensions is that the distributions, when you look across all the people in a population, the distributions are well-behaved distributions, meaning they're centered around the middle, that most of the people are in the middle and there's fewer people out into the tails. And the Myers-Briggs, you know, if you've ever seen it, if you've ever either taken it or you've seen somebody post their results on LinkedIn, you get categorized on four different dimensions. And, and so you are then put on one pole or the other of one of these dimensions. But in fact, chances are you're probably in the middle of most of those core personality characteristics. And so it gives you a false sense of how extreme you are. And then on top of that, People have tried to use the Myers-Briggs dimensions to predict things in scientific studies. And the reason why there are so few scientific studies that actually have the Myers-Briggs in them is because it doesn't predict much. And so, and so what we've settled on is characteristics like the big five personality characteristics that do seem to reliably predict people's behavior in a variety of circumstances. And that's why the scientific psychologists who, who study personality have really urged people to walk away from the Myers-Briggs and focus on other stuff. And so when you say most people are, are somewhere in the middle or a little bit of both, in case somebody, you know, has been living under a rock maybe and hasn't seen Myers-Briggs. So it, it's when people will post the results, it's like a IFTJ or I, I'm probably getting the letter. INFP, LSMFT. Yeah, absolutely. You're basically introverted or extroverted and then like right. feeling or judging and sensing or something else. But sensing so, and perceiving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so it's basically like you're, nobody or very few people are one or the other, right? right? Like you're not all introverted or all extroverted. You're like sometimes introverted and sometimes extroverted and maybe a little bit towards the one or the other. But you're saying like one of the big flaws with Myers-Briggs is that it tells you you're extroverted and it puts you in that box. And then you would believe that about yourself. And then you're saying there's like predictions then that that are made about like how how you will do and, and what you will do or how you will work with other people. Like how how does it get used in a in a workplace setting in a bad way? Yeah. So the problem is that it gets used in two ways. One is the individual dimensions. So if you're introvert versus extrovert or whatever, then there may be recommendations, treat your introverts like this, treat your extroverts like that. But also, if you have four dimensions and they each have two values, then there are 16 boxes you can place people in. And then and then sometimes you'll treat those almost, you know, at the risk of now uh, potentially getting a lot of email from people, <laughs> you can treat them almost a little horoscopy, mm -hmm. you know, that, a, that an INTJ as a, is a particular type of person. And then you start 
kind of, you know, ascribing a set of characteristics to them. And then, and then sometimes, you know, you'll see systems where they actually give colors to this stuff. And, and now, you know, if you see somebody with a particular color, you're supposed to treat them in a particular way. And actually to carry on with the horoscope theme a little bit, because most people are sort of in the middle on most of these dimensions, which means that they have a little bit of each, they will see something truthful in themselves regardless of which box they fall in, because they'll say, yeah, I'm sort of that way. Mm -hmm. When you look at personality assessments, you know, on the big five, for example, which has five dimensions rather than four, what you'll find is most people are not extreme on all five of those dimensions. They might be extreme on one or two, which means, you know, if you take the the Myers-Briggs, there might be a dimension that's there that's one where you really are, you might really be an extreme introvert. But on the others, you probably have characteristics of both. And so, you know, you could play a little game with people and give them three or four different descriptions of who they are and say, so which one are you? And what you'll find is, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I That sort of describes me, but actually that sort of describes me too. So I feel like I kind of know the answer to this. I feel like this is like intrinsic. Um, we want to understand ourselves better. We want a strong sense of identity. But like, why is this test and other tests like that. It's it's not only the Myers-Briggs that kind of operates like this, right? But like, why has this test been so popular for so long? Like it's still, like you said, people will put it in their LinkedIn profile. It's still really commonly used at a lot of companies. Why is it so popular if it's been discredited from what it sounds like since the 1960s? Well, what I'd say is most people haven't actually taken very much psychology. And even the ones who've taken a little of it it probably hasn't been very good psychology. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a science that didn't make the cut at the, at the beginning of the 20th century when we systematized our curriculum. And so you don't get it. You don't get much of it uh, in your K-12 education when you do get it. So now high school students can sometimes take an advanced placement psychology class. But even then, what they're getting is this big survey class in psychology that tends to spend about eight minutes on every topic. And so you get sort of intrigued by some things, but you don't get any depth in it. And and even when we teach psychology, we tend to teach the content, but not the methodology, which means nobody really understands where these observations came from. So we'll tell you something about biases or we'll tell you something, you know, about personality characteristics, but we won't really explain to you, here's how we came up with all that stuff so that you could actually begin to assess for yourself. Is this a reasonable way of thinking about, say, personality? And we often, when we talk about things like personality dimensions, don't say to people, look, if you're trying to evaluate whether a particular personality inventory is one that you should pay attention to, what should you be looking for? And obviously, research is a piece of it. Like, is there anything that really validates this in the peer-reviewed literature? But I would say, be wary of any personality inventory that tries to categorize you and be wary of any personality inventory that tries to give you an assessment of how good you are at anything that can't really be defined. Like I always worry when, it, when, when somebody shows me an assessment and says, this is going to show you your leadership potential. Because I'll say, if you can first explain to me what a leader is, then we can start talking. But having served on committees where we've tried to define what leadership is and you get 12 people on the committee and you get 18 different answers to that question, there isn't a single definition of what a good leader is. So how are you going to get an inventory that purports to tell you uh, how good a leader you are or, or creativity? 
Do we have a really great definition of what creativity is? No, not really. So I can't really tell you how likely you are to be creative. I can, I can tell you how likely you are to perform in a particular way on a particular task that might be related to creativity in some way. But I can't just say these people are creative. These people are not so creative. You bring up a good point, especially about leadership. You know, we had a, an episode last year where we talked about the title of the episode was uh, This is Why Your Boss is So Bad at His Job. And it was about how people with a, a narcissistic personality are more likely to be kind of promoted and, and seen as leaders. But our definition of what a leader is, is often really flawed. It's somebody who's charismatic and, you know, these sorts of things that that we have decided as a society mean you're a leader, but don't you know, th there's no like hardcore definition of what a leader actually is. So it, it sounds like a lot of these things are, you know, that we're, we're doing these assessments for are just really subjective anyways. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And it's one of the reasons why the field of personality psychology actually went in a very different direction from its roots. So if you ask, where did the, you know, I keep talking about this big five and, you know, and where did that come from? Well, early on, they would just ask a bunch of questions. How much do you like to do particular kinds of things? How much do you gravitate to particular kinds of situations? And the original roots were really empirical. They were based on the data. So if, you, if, you, if I ask you a thousand questions about stuff you like to do, don't like to do, gravitate towards, and so on, and then I throw them all into a statistical hopper, and I basically use, use a technique they call factor analysis, which basically says, how much does your answer to one question predict the answer you're going to give to another question? What you find is that if you take a whole bunch of questions and you do this factor analysis, you find these five underlying dimensions that consistently come out to explain how your answer to one question seems to relate to your answer to other questions. And by refining that over time, they developed the initial big five, which goes by the acronym OCEAN for people who want to play at home on this. And that's openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and what's called neuroticism. Sometimes it's, it's, they use the opposite pole of that, call it emotional stability, but OCEAN's easier than OCEAN. <laughs> so... Um, but those dimensions really initially came out just by looking at the way people answered these questions. And then later, theories developed about how those characteristics actually reflect basic levels of human motivation for different kinds of situations. And so in some ways, the explanation for why the characteristics are the way they are came after the observation that they were there. And so it didn't start with a theory of this must be the way personality works. It started with what do we know about the ways that people differ from each other and in, in stable ways, and then emerged into a deeper explanatory theory from there. So it sounds like if I'm understanding that the, the big five kind of tries to get at a lot of the same things that Myers-Briggs and, and some of the other personality assessments that people might be familiar with. It tries to get at some of those same things, but it just goes about the getting to those answers in a different, more comprehensive way. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, and it does it in a way that's been validated on thousands and thousands and thousands of studies over decades. So it works. Now, now, I should say, by the way, this and this is true of all personality inventories, frankly, even if you're trying to do something with the Myers-Briggs, which I really don't recommend, 
you got to remember that anyone's behavior in any given situation is driven partly by their personality trait related to that situation. So if I'm in a big group and I'm an extrovert, then I am motivated to want people to pay attention to me. I want motivated to want to engage with everybody. And so all else being equal, I might do that. But if I show up at an important meeting where I'm not the boss and there's a lot of people there and I want to impress everybody, I might sit down and shut up in that situation because even though there's a part of me that wants to engage and be visible, I also know that that's going to reflect badly on me. And so the situation constrains my behavior. So we have to understand that even in the best of circumstances, personality characteristics predict, you know, like 20% of somebody's behavior in situations and the situation, the constraints that a situation places on somebody account for a lot of the rest of that, which is why you're pretty good at predicting the personality characteristics of people you know, but if you only know them in one circumstance, like you only know them at work or you only know them at a party, then you're going to have a biased view of their personality because you're not really going to be able to disentangle how much of what I know about them is a reflection of their traits and how much of it is a reflection of the situation that they're in. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's exactly whenever I've taken a personality assessment, I'm really frustrated for the reason of I want to say sometimes to almost every question. I want to say, well, it depends because I do not think of myself as an extroverted person. However, I'm pretty, I host a podcast. So I'm like, I'm pretty comfortable in some public speaking circumstances, but like I am not the person at a party who will just like go up and talk to a bunch of strangers. But the questions are never like, are never situational. Usually, you know, they're like, oh, how do you feel about speaking in front of people? And then I say, I'm okay, I'm okay with it. Okay, you're an extrovert. And so how, how do you then make any a use out of your results? Even if say you're using the big five and you want to get to know um, you know, especially like in a workplace setting and you want to kind of understand the people that you work with better and like how you can work to better, better together. And, and your results are saying you're an extrovert and, you know, yeah. the truth is only sometimes you're an extrovert. Like how, how do, how can you use these results then? So the first thing to say is the answer to every difficult psychology question is always, it depends. <laughs> and it's the, what it depends on. That's the interesting stuff. So, so I think it's just important to always keep that in mind. But what I find to be a really great exercise is actually to give people a big five inventory and then, you know, to get together in groups with colleagues, let's say, and, and, to, and to rate your colleagues on those dimensions as well, you know, to answer, you could take the same inventory. You could say, okay, look, you're going to answer that inventory for yourself and I'm going to answer it for you. And then we're going to take our responses to that. And that provides the starting point for a conversation. So I might say, boy, Kate, you know, just know, knowing you in the situations I do, I would have thought you were much more extroverted than you rated yourself. So why is that? And you could say, well, you know, I mean, I've, I've learned to be good at podcasts, but there are lots of other situations in which I don't actually want to be uh, out in front of everybody. I don't really want everybody paying attention to me in those situations. I'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. And we can actually get to know each other better by understanding those constraints. What, what does it depend on? And that can be a valuable thing to do for a couple of reasons, right? One is we tend to interpret other people's behavior by asking what would, what would I do in this situation? 
And then if I mispredict what you're going to do, I have a little bit of trouble knowing, well, what's going on there. So the more I understand about aspects of your personality, the more that I can correct for how you're likely to be relative to, to how I would react in this situation. And then in the workplace, personality really does reflect things that we're motivated to do. Understanding those motivations can sometimes help you to understand things that other people will find difficult to do. So I'll, I'll give you an example. My one of my favorite personality dimensions in the workplace is the, is the dimension of agreeableness, which has to do with how motivated are you to get along with other people? And of course, that sounds like a wonderful thing. Being really motivated to get along with other people sounds like it's a good thing. Not being that motivated to get along with other people sounds like it's a bad thing. And in many situations, of course, that's true. But but in the workplace, being very agreeable causes problems because it means that you're unwilling and, and very uncomfortable with criticizing other people. Because in the moment that you deliver criticism to somebody else, they don't really love you in that moment. They might come to appreciate it sometime later, but in that moment, they're not happy with you. And so agreeable people often have difficulty delivering criticism. They, they're the ones who, who use the compliment sandwich which is a terrible way of trying to criticize. And they talk around it, right? They, they'll use all sorts of words, but they won't just come out and say it. And I actually tell people, look, if you are really agreeable and you have difficulty criticizing, here's the formulation you need to learn. What you need to learn to say to somebody is, you did X, it caused Y. In the future, I'd like you to do Z. And what's, what's nice about that is it's an easy thing to remember you can get through it quickly. And it's formulated in a way that is unlikely to get people really defensive because you're just talking about their actions, not their motivations. You're talking about a verifiable outcome and you're just specifying, this is what I want you to do in the future. And so it doesn't eliminate any conflict, but it, it minimizes it relative to a lot of other ways of trying to deliver a criticism. And at least by the end of the conversation, somebody got a simple declarative sentence that explains to them what they did wrong and what they should do differently in the future. And so by understanding personality characteristics, you can actually then create these kinds of strategies for people that are tuned to this is something that your motivation is probably going to make hard for you to do. You've said a lot there that I think is, is really useful. I think, you know, the last thing that you said there about, you know, once if you are going to use an assessment like the big five in, in your workplace, how to actually put into place a different way to work or advice on managing somebody. If you know, for example, like you just gave, if they're agreeable and, and that means criticism is difficult for them and you can give them actual tools. I think the other thing that you said was really interesting is doing what it sounded like kind of a, you know, we, we've, we've talked before about a, like a 360 uh, performance review, you know, where you're, you ask a lot of your colleagues, like, how do you think I perform? Like, you know, you ask your peers to review you. It sounds like a good way for colleagues to understand how to work better with each other is to talk to each other about what they think of, you know, I like the example you gave of my assessment says I'm an extrovert, but I actually see myself this way. It's really interesting to hear how your your colleagues see you and, and how that works together. Uh, another place that I think that assessments like this get used a lot is in the hiring process. It's usually to determine 
the so-called culture fit, which we've talked about on the show, can be really problematic. Can you talk through what can happen if a company relies on assessments like these to kind of screen applicants and, and what they can do instead? I generally personally advise against using personality characteristics as a screening tool for for several reasons. One, because even the best of the tools like the big five are still only predicting, you know, about 20% of the difference between people and their behavior relative to the situations. And so personality isn't destiny. And even some, you know, I mean, as, as you pointed out earlier, even somebody who may not be all that extroverted can still go ahead and become a really polished, accomplished public speaker. And so you wouldn't want to say, well, you're an introvert, so you can't do that. So that's one piece to it. No personality inventory is going to be 100% predictive in ways that, that, that are likely to be more useful than other aspects of what you could get uh, about people from in the hiring process. But the other thing is, to the extent that you begin to create a type that your company hires, you can actually begin to create a group of people who are homogenous enough in their motivations that they miss out on the benefits of other ways that people might be motivated. So, for example, if everybody's really agreeable, nobody, nobody criticizes, nobody says the emperor has no clothes, and you run headlong into a bad idea because nobody wanted to be the one to say it. I'll give you another example. There was a company I did a lot of consulting for um, that I, I will allow them to remain nameless, but just say you, you're likely to have lots of their products in your home. And that company had a, a long reputation for hiring people who were really, really conscientious. And conscientiousness reflects a combination of, do you finish the stuff you start and are you motivated to follow the rules? And And you might say, well, that's, and that's a great thing for organizations to have. You can be really productive. And that's true. But it's actually hard to be a renegade, to kind of really try something outside the norm if you're a rule follower. And so what this company found was the, the people who were kind of really willing to think differently about things and to, and to take that contrarian approach and, and do things that were not the corporate way, they were really ostracized in ways that that limited the creativity of some of the people there. And so that kind of homogeneity of motivation can create blind spots within the organization because people then may not value the renegades who actually might point the way towards here's the world is changing. We have to actually change the rules because the world is not is no longer the same as it was when we started doing this things this way 30 years ago. That's really that's really interesting because it does feel like whenever you take an assessment on some of the questions at least like the right answer, right? Like I'm a very disorganized person. Well, that's the, you know, saying yes to that is the wrong answer. Like there's there's some traits that seem universally um good, especially in work. And uh, I can definitely see a company saying, okay, we, we you know, we want to screen for this. We want to make sure that, you know, things like introversion and extroversion, like maybe there's a little bit for certain jobs that you, you could view it as good or bad, but like some things are universally good, right? Obviously it's problematic if you're using it as a screening tool to like get everybody to be the same type of person. 
And that's the same problem that we've seen when in hiring, you know, there's a lack of diversity because you hire people who look or, and seem like you. But also you you want people who are just different to come up with the different solutions, right? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I, whenever I t- talk about personality in classes, I, I'm part of the, the the Human Dimensions of Organizations master's program here at UT and University of Texas. And I, I actually taught personality uh, a week and a half ago. And, and one of the things that I do when I, when I teach my, my unit on that is, is to point out that particularly when it comes to the big five personality characteristics and many of the other characteristics as well, we'll leave narcissism off to the side for a second. Um, but for many of the others, neither pole of those dimensions is up, that there are strengths and weaknesses to being extreme uh, on, on any of those dimensions. You know, I mentioned some of that with conscientiousness. I said a couple of things about agreeableness as well. You know, it turns out there's data suggesting that disagreeable people make more money on average than agreeable people do because they're more willing to go in and ask for a raise. I was just going to say they're going to negotiate. And I think we've, I've talked on this show about it and I think I've talked with you about it. For so many years, I didn't negotiate and I was very agreeable. Somebody would say the salary and I'd say, okay, thank you. And yeah, so I can definitely see, you know, a disagreeable person can make more money for sure. Yeah. So neither end is up. And 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 what you want from an organizational standpoint actually is some amount of that diversity. We want people who are motivated in slightly different ways because when we get groups together to do things, those differences in motivation will lead to a little bit of conflict. You know, you know, we don't we don't want a lot of conflict in the workplace, but a little bit of churn is a good thing because it means that we're actually analyzing the assumptions of what we're doing, we're thinking things through in a more careful way. And and so we need that kind of discussion in order to make that happen and it is differences in motivation and differences in knowledge that create those little tensions. If if everybody knows the same things and if everybody's motivated in the same way, then everybody hears an idea and goes, yep, that sounds good to me. Yeah, you're exactly right. It sounds like there is definitely some use for some sort of personality work. It sounds like you very strongly suggest the big five if, if people are interested in a particular assessment in the workplace and to kind of understand your colleagues better and how to and maybe your employees better and how to manage and work together better. It doesn't sound like there's a, a role for it in the hiring process, right? Is, is that am I am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't recommend it in hiring. I do recommend understanding at least the big five. There are some others that are fun. There's a there's a dimension called need for closure that reflects whether you tend to be the sort of person who likes to think about stuff or the kind of person who likes to do stuff. And you see that in, in organizations as well. Some people, you know, after five minutes of deliberation, they're like, great, let's try it. And then other people are like, no, no let's think about that longer. And you don't want to be too far as an organization on either of those poles. If you look before you leap, you can cause all sorts of problems. But if you never leap, that's also a problem. So, you, you know, you, you, want, you want some balance there. So I, I do think that it's useful to know about those characteristics. I think it's great for developing your own career and employees' careers to know something about their personality characteristics. I think it's really great for designing groups. If you're trying to put a group together to work on a project, balancing out some of those characteristics so that you have, so for example, another dimension, openness to experience, which is basically, you know, what is your orientation to a new thing? People who are really open are intrigued by new things. They may not, they may ultimately decide they don't like them very much, but they're going to try them out. 
People who are on the closed end to experience tend to reject new things and treat all new things with some amount of trepidation just because they're new. And so you want to mix in a group, even if you're trying to innovate, because you don't want to be, you don't want to have everyone so open that they are just flitting from one thing to the next. Ooh, that looks good, but that looks good too, right? You want to have some pull towards, hey, let's be careful in how much new stuff we do. But you certainly don't want a group that is all, uh, we're only going to do it the old way, particularly in, in the modern era where most companies need to change their business model every 20 years uh, or less just to stay in business. You, you have to have a certain number of people who really are saying, you know what, here's a trend that's coming. And if we don't pay attention to that, we're going to be in trouble. So, so you want to have that balance across the group. That's a really good point. And I think probably the opposite of the way that a lot of people think about using personality at work is thinking, you know, as you said at the top where, you know, oh, what color are you? What, you know, I'm an, I'm going to get the letters wrong. I'm an IFPJ, you're an IFPJ, you know, we're both blue. Everybody on, on the, you know, design team should all be blues. But really it sounds like the the best and most thriving workplace is a healthy mix of different types of characteristics that can kind of balance each other out. Yeah, I think that's right. And and one in which people understand enough about this to also make sure that everyone is given an opportunity to contribute in a way that they will ultimately actually contribute because they're comfortable with it. So for example, you know, somebody who's very agreeable you know, they may see some flaws in what's going on, but have some discomfort at raising that, particularly if everybody else is really excited about it. So can you give them a back channel to reach out to you to say, look, I, you know, I know everybody's really excited about this, but I'm, here's my, here are my concerns so that, and that they know in advance, look, you know, please, I, I'm asking you to say it if you can, but if you really are, if you really can't get yourself to say it in the group, at least email it to me Yeah. or we'll come up with a code word. We've put things like that in place at, at Fast Company and, you know, knowing that speaking up especially is something that's difficult for a lot of people, but the, the loudest talker isn't always the one with the best ideas, we'll say, yep. um, that it's great to, to work in those systems and have those those other ways. Yeah. 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 When, when you get group idea generation going, and that's a whole other topic, right? But one of the things I talk about when I talk about that is that the people who speak first in a group are the extroverts and the narcissists. <laughs> and being extroverted and being narcissistic are uncorrelated with having good ideas. Yeah. Not negatively, just uncorrelated. But all those ideas infect the minds of everybody else. So as soon as they're said, everybody else in the group starts thinking a little more similarly to those people who spoke first. So finding a way to make sure that the quiet people are able to make their contribution before their minds are infected by, by the extroverts and the narcissists is important. Yeah, that's really important. That, and that goes back to the the episode that we did on, on narcissism, where it was it was really about like the the person that speaks up the most is usually viewed as the leader, but the tendency to speak up does not correlate to the tendency to be a good leader. That's right. This episode of the New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at Verizon.com. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Have you taken a personality assessment at work? Do you think it was useful or not? 
Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag new way we work. The new way we work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Thank you.